Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to my underground lair. I have gathered here before me the world's deadliest assassins. And yet, each of you has failed to kill Austin Powers. That makes me angry. And when Dr. Evil gets angry, Mr. Bigglesworth gets upset. And when Mr. Bigglesworth gets upset, people die! Why must I be surrounded by frickin' idiots? Mustafa, Frau Farbissina, I spared your lives because I need you to help me rid the world of Britain's top secret agent. The only man who can stop me now. We must kill Austin Powers. It's been 30 years, but I'm back. Everything's gone perfectly to plan except for one small flaw. Due to a technical error by my henchman Mustafa, complications arose in the unfreezing process. My design was perfect. Look what you did to Mr. Bigglesworth! But Dr. Evil, we were unable to anticipate feline complications due to the reanimation process. Silence! Let this be a reminder to you all that this organization will not tolerate failure. Gentlemen, let's get down to business. We've got a lot of work to do. Some of you I know, some of you I'm meeting for the first time. Uh-huh. Uh, hello, there. Anyone? Can someone call an ambulance? I get quite a lot of pain. Okay, you've all been gathered here to form oh. my evil cabinet. Excuse me. Yes, he's down there. Is he dead? No, not dead. Yeah, burnt. Badly. Yes. Kill him. Right. If somebody could open the retrieval hatch down here, I could get out. See, I designed this device myself. Oh, hi. Good. I'm glad you found me. Listen, I'm very badly burned, so if you could just... You shot me. Okay, moving on. You shot me right in the arm. Why did... Right. I just like that movie. Sorry. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Jesus says there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, or hell as the King James puts it, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. The picture is Lazarus and Abraham together at a large table. Then he, the rich man, cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he might dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus' evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed. So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, uh, five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. 
But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Now we'll spend this week and next week talking about this story. But before we can really get into it, I feel like I need to address the elephant in, in the room. <laughs> so some people say it doesn't really matter, but I think that it really, really does matter. The elephant is a question, and the question is this. Is God Dr. Evil? <laughs> this is a picture, you may have seen a picture like this. This is a man being burned alive by fire probably somewhere in Syria. Uh, this is a, a picture, this next picture is a picture that I took in Auschwitz. It's the remains of gas chambers and incinerators and the field was full of human ashes. This next picture is an artist's representation of the god uh, Moloch, worship of the god Moloch. In ancient times, some of the Jews would sacrifice uh, their infants to the god Moloch. They would burn them with fire. Is God like Moloch? Or maybe Hitler? Or, or Isis? Or Dr. Evil? Or infinitely worse? You know, because children offered to Moloch or, or offered uh, to some Aryan deity or, or offered to Allah by Isis, they only burn for like a minute. You know, even Dr. Evil couldn't tolerate the sufferings of his chief henchman, Mustafa, for more than a minute. Someone help me. I'm very badly burned. Still alive and very, very badly burned. Even Dr. Evil couldn't enjoy his dinner while his enemies burned in pain. And yet there are people that argue that this is exactly heaven. They say that heaven is a place where we sit at the table of the Lord and forever feast on his sumptuous banquet of grace, aware of the fact that, the most, that, that most of humanity is tortured by God in a living death, burned but not consumed forever and ever and ever without end. They even say that this makes the feast that much better for we'll be grateful for the good choice that we made or grateful for the good luck to be chosen to choose grace. We'll be forever grateful that we are not them burning in the fire. We are separate. That's heaven, they say. I guess kind of like sitting at the dinner table with Dr. Evil, but the cries for help from the flames below never come to an end. That's heaven, they say. And whether you choose it or are chosen to choose, whether you're an Arminian or a Calvinist, all agree, all agree that to get there to heaven requires faith. And faith means trust. But if God is really Dr. Evil, well, that is quite an elephant in the room. And quite an elephant in my heart. And I find him rather difficult to trust. In Luke 6, Jesus, Jesus says this, love your enemies, love your enemies and do good and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. It's, is endless torment merciful? Is God merciful except for endless torture? I mean, that seems to be quite an, quite an elephant in the room. Is God love except for the fact that he consigns most people to an endless living death? Some say, oh, 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 oh God, God is, God is love. But oh, yeah, he's also the opposite of love. We, we call it justice. Oh, yeah, God is good. He's good, but, but oh, yeah, he's also Dr. Evil. And oh, yeah, he's also your dad. You know, if someone convinced you that your father, who calls himself love, 
was Dr. Evil, well, that might affect you in a rather negative sort of way. Actually, I think it's the very thing that keeps psychotherapists in business and the religion industry running on full steam. Remember when we froze your semen? You said if it didn't look like you were coming back, we should try to make you a son so that a part of you could live forever. Oh, sure. Well, after a couple of years, we got a little impatient. <laughs> Dr. Evil, I want you to mate your son. My son? Yeah. Scott! Oh. Hello, Scott. Hi. I'm your father. Dr. Evil. Okay, give in to the beauty of your feelings and say the words. Come on. I love you, Dad. I love you, too, son. Let's break through. Okay, group, we have some newcomers here today with us. Say hello to Scott and his father, Mr. Avil? Evil. Actually, Dr. Evil. Hello, Dr. Evil. Evil. Hello, Hello, Scott. Scott. Hello, everybody. So, Scott, why don't we start with you? What brings you here with us today? Well, I just really met my dad for the first time five days ago. I was partially frozen his whole life. That is beautiful that you can admit to that. So, what do you want to do, Scott? I don't know. I was thinking I like animals. Maybe I'd be a vet. An evil vet? No. Maybe like work in a petting zoo. An evil petting zoo? You always do that! I just think like he hates me. I really think he wants to kill me. Now, Scott... We don't want to kill each other in here. We might say that we do sometimes, but we, we really don't. <laughs> Actually, the boy's quite astute. I really am trying to kill him, but so far, unsuccessfully. He's quite wily like his old man. So as you know, um, Scott, tries to please his father, Dr. Evil, and yet Scott has a very hard time trusting his father, Dr. Evil, and likewise loving his father, Dr. Evil. In the words of Isaiah, he honors him with his lips, but his heart is far, far from him. And eventually, if you've seen the movies, Scott becomes the new Dr. Evil. So is that the point of, of Jesus' story? Love people now so you don't have to love them forever, something like that? Is the point that we should care for the poor and the suffering now so we can feast in heaven and ignore the poor and suffering in hell for all eternity? There's an elephant in, in the room. There's an elephant in our heart, and there's an elephant in the story. Did Jesus tell this story to turn his followers into infinite and eternal compassionless rich men who feast in heaven while the rest of humanity endlessly burns in hell? There's an elephant in, in the house of love, and maybe the elephant is a lie from the devil, and Jesus wants to kill it with the revelation of the truth, or maybe... The elephant is the truth in the story, begging us to take a second look at the lie. Whatever, whatever the case, in my experience, whenever you encounter a problem in scripture or a problem in life for that matter, the way out is never around. It's always through. It's not avoiding the elephant, but staring it down. Maybe even wrestling the elephant if, if need be. What I'm saying is the way is the truth. And the truth is the life. 
And so let's just take a, a second look at our story. Let's take a close look at the text. Eternal conscious tor torment during dinner is not the only confusing thing about this story. Uh, there are other questions raised by this story, like why does Jesus name the beggar? This is the only story Jesus tells in which he names a character. And why did Jesus mention purple, fine linen, sores, crumbs, dogs, and the five brothers of the rich man who have the law and the prophets? And what's up with Hades and the chasm and the flame in the singular? It's just in the singular, the flame. What's this, this flame? And is heaven Abraham's bosom? I mean, when I think of Abraham's bosom, I think of something like, like that. I mean... Hairy old man bosom, and, and, and I don't want to go there. <laughs> I mean, maybe we could pick another bosom or something. I don't, I don't know. And oh yeah, this is a question too. You can turn that slide off, because that will throw people off. <laughs> this is the other question. Where is God in this story? Seems to be an important question. Well, Jesus did not tell this story in a vacuum. He told it to Pharisees, which means the separate ones. He once told them, you are of your father, the devil. Now, that's, if there's a Dr. Evil, I would think that would be it. He said, you are of your father, the devil, and he is the father of what? People? Yeah. Lies. He's the father of lies. The devil cannot create a real person, only a false person. And he uses us to create that false person by telling us a lie. Uh, 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 this is the lie. You must make yourself in the image of God. You must justify yourself with the knowledge of good and evil, the law, in the power of your own flesh. So Jesus tells a story to, to Pharisees, Jewish Pharisees, the proud men of Judah. You know, Judah was the royal tribe. King David uh, came from Judah. Jesus comes from Judah. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he's our high priest, our king and our priest. Judah uh, was uh, what was left of the 12 tribes of Israel. So Judah had the royal purple, the fine linen of the priesthood, and the law and the prophets. Judah was rich with the grace of God. And the Pharisees thought they had earned that blessing. In other words, they justified themselves. Now the man Judah, who gave, you know, began the tribe of Judah, the, the man Judah was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, who was named Israel, one of the 12 sons of Israel, who was the son of Isaac, who was the promised son of Abraham. And Judah had 11 brothers, but six of them were half-brothers. Judah actually had five brothers, he had five full brothers, five brothers through his mother Leah and his father Israel. Most folks aren't aware of that. But believe me, the Pharisees were very, very aware of that and proud of that. That was a way in which they justified themselves and their money. Money is the way we quantify human effort or, or work. The Pharisees justified themselves with works of the law. They work for their money and their righteousness. Luke 16, 14, Jesus tells them and us a story. Let's take a closer look. Now, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. He then says uh, in verses 16 through 18, he points out two things that thoroughly implicate the Pharisees as men who break covenant and crucify the Messiah. And maybe we all crucify the Messiah. That is, we take the kingdom by violence. We crucify the king and get a kingdom. So, to the Pharisees, I'm just saying to the Pharisees, the spiritually wealthy separate ones, Jesus says this. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. 
But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Sores is an important touch because if you had open sores, you could not enter the temple. You must be kept outside the temple. And the temple was like a great barbecue where inside God and the people of God feasted on roast lamb and bread and wine. Dogs is a reference to Gentiles. Well, this beggar appears to be a hated Gentile, full of sores, shut out, lying just outside the gate. Next verse. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels, the messengers, to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Torments is the Greek noun, from the Greek noun basano. It literally means touchstone or test stone. It refers to testing precious metals by scraping them on this stone. It's not something you do to something that's already condemned. It's something you do to something you expect or, 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 or wonder if. It's something you expect to be very, very, very valuable. Torments in Hades. The King James Version translates that as hell, but there really are no Greek or Hebrew words that are an exact equivalent to our English word hell. Hades translates the Hebrew word Sheol. Both Sheol and Hades are often translated the grave. In the Old Testament, Job talks about hiding from God's wrath in Sheol, but in Deuteronomy, the Lord reveals that his fire reaches even to the depths of Sheol. Jesus referred to Sheol as outer darkness where men weep and gnash their teeth. Sheol is separation. <laughs> and the Pharisees wanted to be separate. According to Psalm 6, in Sheol and Hades, no one remembers God. And yet, God remembers them. Psalm 139, he's even with them. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon seems to say that all men, good and bad, go to Hades. So it wouldn't have been entirely clear to Jesus' listeners that Abraham and Lazarus were in what we think of as, as heaven, and yet they would have wondered, because they were across a chasm. Like the promised land was across a chasm. A chasm that we now call the Jordan Rift Valley. They were on the other side of the chasm as if in the promised land at a, a, great, a great banquet. And the banquet explains the bosom. You, you may remember that at the Last Supper, John was said to rest upon Jesus' bosom. In that day, when they would have a banquet, they would recline at a low table and they'd lean on their left elbow like this with their feet out back and the person to the right would do the same and so it was said that their head was in your bosom John chapter 1 says Jesus is from the bosom of the father the beggar excluded from the rich man's banquet is in Abraham's bosom the beggar is bosom buddies with father Abraham and I think that really burned the rich man Jesus had already said to the Jews, the men of Judah, listen closely to them, he said this. See if it sounds familiar. I tell you, men will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This place sounds exactly like that place. Verse 24, then he, the rich man, cries out. He cried and he said, Father Abraham, he calls him father, or maybe grandfather. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in this flame. That's just weird because he isn't begging God for mercy. It's like he doesn't see God. He can't see God. He doesn't know God. He isn't begging God for mercy. He's begging Abraham and refers to Lazarus as if he's the family slave. Tell him to fetch me a drop of water to cool my tongue. Is his tongue on fire? 
The book of James says the tongue is a fire set on fire by Gehenna. Scripture says that Gehenna is set on fire by the breath of God. Maybe the rich man is really rethinking something that he, he said about, about Lazarus. Tell Lazarus to put water on my tongue for I'm tormented. And here he uses another word for torment. It's a fascinating word because it really doesn't apply to physical anguish, but psychic anguish. The, the rich man is being uh, tormented by this flame. This flame is causing mental anguish in the, the rich man. But Abraham said to him, son, Abraham calls him son. Like he really is a son of Abraham. Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. You know, Jesus did say the measure you give is the measure you get. I mean, maybe he actually meant that. The measure you give is the measure you get and the judgment you pronounce with your tongue is the judgment that you receive. But endless conscious torment is a measure infinitely greater than a few years of suffering the snubs of a rich man while lying at his gate. And endless bliss in heaven is hardly something that could be earned by Lazarus no matter how well he took his temporal sufferings. Whatever the case, if the measure you give is the measure you get, you better not wish anyone to hell. And I would suggest that when you give measures, the measure you give is, is Jesus to everyone. Abraham says, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, chasmos, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, then the rich man said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. That is, Abraham, send him to the house of Israel. Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. What a fascinating thing to say. Because the men of Judah, the Jews, are soon to take Jesus, the high priest and king of the Jews. They will take Jesus, the promised seed of Abraham. They will take Jesus, the word of God. They'll take Jesus and have him crucified. And he will rise from the dead. And yet most will still not believe. The men of Judah, Judah. I mean, it must have been entirely obvious to the Pharisees, the rich man in Jesus' story is Judah. The purple, the linen, the law and the prophets, the, the son of Abraham who has five brothers, that's, uh, that's Judah. <laughs> and Israel is his house. Judah is the Jews. And, and Jesus thinks they're rich. Paul, in, in Romans 9, says they're rich. Abraham, Abraham was rich. Genesis 12, too. He was blessed to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Scripture makes it clear that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that is Israel, were chosen by grace. By grace, because no one deserves God's blessing. That's the, that's the point of election. We don't choose, but God chooses to bless uh, through no merit of our own. So, so no one can boast in God's blessing. It's grace, absolute grace. Deuteronomy 9, God says to Moses and all Israel, I love this verse. Do not say in your heart, it's because of our righteousness, our justness, that's where the idea comes from. Don't say it's because of your righteousness. Don't justify yourselves. Don't say it's because of your righteousness. Know therefore, this is a, I'm quoting now. Know therefore that the Lord is not giving you this good land because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. 
stiff-necked, obstinate. The Jews were blessed to be a blessing, but they hung on to the blessing. The blessing is not only the promised land, it's also the promised seed. To them was given the kingdom and the Christ, and they did not want to share. If you're rich, and you don't share your riches with the poor, you will justify yourself and vilify the poor. You will convince yourself that you deserve what you have and the poor deserve what they don't have. You will convince yourself that you deserve heaven and they deserve hell. If you justify yourself, you separate yourself from other people with arrogance and pride. That's self-justification, self-righteousness. And, and if you justify the fact that you're in while others are out, don't be surprised to find the others in and yourself out, side, in Hades, being tormented by an unquenchable flame. Well, the rich man justified himself. In fact, it seems like he's still justifying himself in Hades. I mean, he's still ordering Lazarus around. Did you notice that? As if he's exalted and Lazarus is humbled. As if he's first and Lazarus is last. As if he's the master and Lazarus is the slave. He justifies himself. But Lazarus could not justify himself because he's poor. But rich, he's last, but first. He's humbled, but exalted. Lazarus has been justified. Who's Lazarus? Now, this I find to be utterly fascinating. Lazarus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Eliezer. And that name is formed with two words. El, which was the ancient generic name for God among the people of the ancient Near East. El and Azer, which means help. In the garden, Adam couldn't find his Azer. There was no, he found no Azer fit for him. And the rest of scripture is the story of Adam finding his Azer. And it reminds us over and over again, God is your Azer. God is our Azer. Eliezer means God is my helper. And there's only one Eliezer in, in the Old Testament that we really know much about. I actually know one Eliezer in my life who was from our church in the Dominican Republic that cared for my dad while he was sick and dying, Eliezer. The name means a lot to me because of my old friend Keiko, Eliezer from the DR. But in scripture, there's only one place where Eliezer, we know much about anyone named Eliezer, and that is Eliezer of Damascus. Syria. And now, listen, uh, my fellow wealthy American evangelical Christians. I'm not making this stuff up, okay? I didn't plan this out. I didn't map this out. I think we're wrestling with the word of God. The promised blessing. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. Listen to this. The word of God appears to Abraham and says, your reward will be great, Abraham. Verse 2, Abraham says, the word of God's staying there. He's talking to him. Abraham says to the word of God, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Eliezer was Abraham's Syrian servant, set to inherit all of Abraham's riches if Abraham had no heir. But Abraham's heir was the promised blessing, the seed, through which God would bless all the nations of the earth, including Syria. It seems that this Eliezer had faith in that promised blessing. So 30-some years later, after Isaac is born to, to Sarah in Genesis 24-2, Abraham makes his faithful servant, who, quote, was in charge over all he owned, he, he has him place his hand under his thigh and swear an oath. 
Now that's probably a nice way to say, grab the sign of the covenant, Eliezer. Grab that place the promised seed came from, Eliezer, the sign of the covenant. Grab and swear an oath by the promised blessing. I love the Bible, it's so cool. So Eliezer swears to find Isaac, Abraham's Abraham swears to find Isaac. It was Abraham's son swears to find Isaac a bride. Why? To advance the promised seed that would be passed on through the loins of Isaac's grandson, Judah. Do you understand? If it weren't for Eliezer and his faith in the promised blessing, there would be no Judah. Judah wouldn't exist. The Jews wouldn't exist. The Pharisees wouldn't exist. And according to the flesh, Jesus, the promised blessing wouldn't exist. And you wouldn't exist, Christian. Well, that's quite a plot twist. The very last is, is first. So Eliezer of Damascus was Abraham's servant who appeared to be rejected but is thoroughly accepted. He lost everything for the promised blessing. But Abraham was blessed to be a blessing to all the peoples of the world, including Eliezer. So of course, Eliezer, Lazarus, is in Abraham's bosom. And of course, Judah still tries to boss him around. And of course, Judah is in torment. Why? Because he's jealous of Lazarus and he can't justify himself. His ego is being consumed by this unquenchable flame. So will this go on forever and ever and ever without end? No, it cannot go on forever and ever and ever without end because Hades will not go on forever and ever and ever without end. The Bible says so, Revelation 20, 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, 21, 4, and death will be no more. This is the second death. The lake of fire is the death of death. The end of death. So the torment, listen closely, the torment is not endless, and the torment has an end. The torment has a telos in Greek. The torment has a perfection. The torment has a purpose. It doesn't pay for Judah's sins, but maybe it's discipline upon Judah's soul. He needs to feel what Lazarus felt. Why? Because he needs to know what Lazarus knows. And what does Lazarus know? God is his helper. El Azer. God is help. Well, anyway, Jesus is the end. And Jesus is the life. The life is the end of death. You may say, well, cool, okay, whoa, 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 but what about the chasm that none can cross? Well, does that include God? Here's a philosophical question for you. Can God make a chasm so big he cannot cross it? <laughs> and, and did you notice something is crossing the chasm? Did you notice that? Words are crossing the chasm. The very words that we're wrestling with right now, the, the word of God, and the word of God is Jesus through which all things are created, including chasms. And even if, even if, let's say, even if none can cross the chasm, we do know that Jesus will destroy the chasm. In fact, that's what he came to do. Luke already said so in chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. John the Baptist cries out in the wilderness of the Jordan Rift Valley, quoting the prophet Isaiah, he cries out, prepare the way of the Lord. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill laid low, literally humbled, and all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. Abraham cannot cross the valley, but God will destroy it. When Jesus is crucified, there's a great earthquake. And the tombs are opened. Hades is opened. The exalted are humbled. And the humbled are exalted. 
the first are last and the last are first. And we will all see that what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of the Lord, writes uh, Scripture, says Jesus, the sight of the Lord. By works of the law, no man will be justified in his sight, writes St. Paul in Romans 3.20. In his sight, no man can justify himself, and all men will be justified. As in Adam, all die, so in Christ will all be made alive, writes St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 and in Romans 5. And, and, now, and, and then now one last really important question. Where is God in this story? Well, we know that Jesus is the end, right? He's the beginning and the end, but, but, but what about the plot? That elephant, what, what, about, what about that flame? In Hades, there is a flame that torments the sons of the kingdom. Is it trying to kill them? This flame? The Greek word is, is flocks. And in the New Testament, it only appears in the singular, and it only appears in seven places. Hebrews 1.7, God makes his messengers, his angels, a flame, a flocks of fire. Acts 7.30, the angel of the Lord is a flame of fire in the burning bush that's not consumed. 2 Thessalonians 1.8, Jesus appears as a, a flame of fire and works ecticasis. He brings out righteousness. He is, Jesus is the judgment of God. And then three times in the Revelation, the eyes of Christ are called a flame of fire. See, see, no man can justify himself in his sight. And now, here in Hades, this flame burns the arrogance of Judah as he gazes across the chasm at Abraham and Lazarus. He's made jealous by love and jealous of love. In Song of Solomon 8.6, there is a word that appears nowhere else in all of Scripture. Shahabet Yah. Shahabet is flame. Yah is Yahweh. It's the flame of Yahweh. And the verse reads like this. Love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave, that's Sheol in the Hebrew, or Hades. Love is strong as death, jealousy fierce as hell. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very Shalhebet Yah, the very flame of the Lord. I'm saying God is not Dr. Evil. God is love. And yet his word is the Shalhebet Yah, the very flame of the Lord. Is not my word like fire, says God to the prophet Jeremiah. The Shalabet Yah. You know, it's on both sides of the chasm. It's the love that burns at the table in the hearts of Abraham and Lazarus. And it's the love that burns Judah's ego as he gazes across the, the chasm. <laughs> burns him. You know, one of my very favorite stories is one told by uh, Billy Graham. Actually, uh, I heard it told. It's not told by Billy Graham because Tony Campolo said he heard it from Billy Graham. And Billy Graham told him that he couldn't really say it in very many places because so many American evangelical Christians were offended by the story. You know, actually, you can go home and check this out. The Internet is just full of videos saying that Billy Graham has renounced Jesus because to Robert Schuller one time, he said that he believed that there were people that knew Jesus even though they didn't know his name but that there was this wideness in God's mercy. And you see, Pharisees hate the wideness in God's mercy. Well, anyway, Billy Graham shared with Tony Campolo that years ago on an evangelism trip in China, he was on this, his way up this mountain to preach the gospel when he saw this monk kneeling in meditation on the side of the path. And he felt led to go over to the monk and share with him uh, the story of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus. And so he took his Bible with his interpreter. He went over to the monk and he, uh, you know, he said, excuse me. And he began to tell him uh, about Jesus, the story of Jesus as he opened 
his Bible. And as he was speaking, tears ran down the monk's face. And then Billy Graham took his Bible, he folded it up, and then he handed it to the monk. He was giving it to, to the monk. And through the tears, the monk said this, you're giving me this book? How can I thank you? I have never had a gift like this. You see, sir, this Jesus that you've described to me, I've always known him. And even as you were reading from this book within me, he was saying, he's speaking of me. He's speaking of me. He's speaking of me. And when you said the name Jesus, he said to me, that's my name. That's my name. And then the monk said, I've always known him. And now I know what he did for me. And now I know exactly who he is. That pagan monk and Jesus were bosom buddies. Does the story burn? Maybe the burning feels good, maybe bad, probably if you're like me, it's a bit of both. Maybe it's the Shalabat Yah. It's the truth that burns the lie that Adam must justify himself with works of the law according to the flesh. It's the grace that burns the false self that we think we have created and now we think we are. It's the consuming fire that destroys our flesh and sets us free, free to love and be loved. It's the presence of the Father standing in the dark field with the older brother pleading with him to come in and join the party. It's the Shalabat Yah, the very flame of the Lord. He was standing right in front of those Pharisees telling them this story and he burned them. And so they crucified Jesus, the promised blessing. But on the cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them. And then he descended into Hades to preach to the spirits in prisons and set the captives free. In the words of Paul and St. Peter, on Pentecost, his spirit fell as tongues, tongues of fire on his followers as they praised Yahweh in the, in, the, in the language of all the nations and blessed all the nations. Soon after that, the very worst of all sinners, the very worst of Pharisees, was on his way to Damascus, Syria to hunt Christians. And the Shalabat Yah, Jesus in blinding light, appeared to him, basically killed him, and set him free. Paul said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then in Romans 11, he basically explains the story of the rich man and Lazarus. So, so go home and, and read it tonight, Romans 11. He asks, has God rejected his people, the Jews? Has God rejected his people? And he answers, by no means, verse 1. He goes on to say, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Why? To make Israel jealous, verse 2. And in this way, all Israel, which is all Jews and all Judah, will be saved, verse 26. In other words, Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom, so the rich man may be saved. To be saved is to receive love and to give love. Love is life. God is love and Jesus is the life. The Shalabat Yah. And then Paul, he finishes his long discourse on all of this in, in chapter 11, verse uh, 32, writing this. God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. All will be humbled and all will be exalted. And then no one will justify themselves. And all can join the party. Your father in heaven is not Dr. Evil. But his word is the Shalabat Yah. And he is helping you die. To your old man, your false self, the lies that you hear and you believe. He's helping you die to your old man in order to reveal your new man created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, Paul, which God prepared before him, wrote Paul. And Paul wrote this, if we are joined with him in a death like his, oh, we will surely be joined with him in a resurrection like his. And so the Shalabat Yah took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body. given to you. 
Take and eat and do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, uh, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. This is the table, the banqueting table of the Lord. And I believe this is the Shalabat Yah. If you run from it, it will follow you into the darkness and it will burn you. Surrender to it and you will be made in the image of God. Your father is not Dr. Evil. Your father is love. And when you come to know that, when you come to know him because he is love, Oh, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul and all your strength. And you will love your neighbor as yourself. Bosom buddies. Close your eyes and watch and pray. I believe that you can stand before the throne right now. In other words, Jesus is actually here. Now, in your mind's eye, just look at him. Because he's looking at you. And there's fire in his eyes. Does it burn? If the burning is, is bad, I think it's because you're trying to justify yourself. Maybe there's someone that you refuse to forgive and you're trying to justify that. Maybe you're afraid and you're trying to justify that. Maybe you're addicted to something and you're trying to justify that. You don't have to understand it and you actually can't fix it. All you can do by God's grace is confess it. Just give it to Jesus because you see the fire in his eye is love for you. And at the same time, it's wrath over the lies that you have believed that keep you in bondage to evil. And so he wants you to confess it, for he takes it to the valley of Gehenna where he consumes it in absolute love. So you can come inside the city and join the party that never ends. Because it's full of the end. It's full of Jesus. So believe the gospel. Your father is not Dr. Evil. Your father is love. And his word is the Shalabet Yah. And he's in your heart. You just ate him at the communion table. So rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen.